I live in Nashville, but I commute down to Bowling Green. It's about an hour. So I, I listen to a lot of podcasts. But, but no, it is actually uh, quite lovely today. The sun is out, the birds are singing. We're talking about things Russian. I mean, what could be better? Hey, Slava Connection listeners. We have a hot episode for you today with Dr. Marko Dumancic. What did we talk about, Cullen? We talked a lot about the gender crisis in the Soviet Union in the 60s. His recent book, Men Out of Focus, and waxed polemic on examples of these dynamics of play in other media at other points in other contexts. It's a good episode. Really enjoyed it. Yeah, so it was chatting about gender, sexuality, or just Russian movies is your fancy. This episode for you. Take a listen. Four, three, two, one. It's not a typical Texas. Texas. You're listening to the Slavic Connection. Connection. Brought to you by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Thank you so much for joining the Slavic Connection today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to a, to a fun time. Yeah, likewise. So if you wouldn't mind for our listeners just giving us a little bit of background on your research, your interests, and what brought you into the field. And a little bit about you as well, since we hear that you have you have some background in Croatia. Uh, that's true. I was actually born, so let's start from the beginning. Uh, I was actually born in Libya, which was, which I think is sort of an interesting fact. And uh, I think speaks to what Yugoslavia used to be and that there was a lot of contacts in Libya. A lot of Yugoslavs spent time in Libya. So I happened to be born in, in Libya in Gaddafi's time. And we moved back to Yugoslavia in the early 80s. And that's where I grew up and I lived there until after the Civil War. We were there during the Wars of Succession and moved to the United States in 96. And I've been here since. So I, I guess I've lived in the United States longer than I have in uh, the former Yugoslavia and then Croatia. When we moved and I started learning Russian in college at Canada College, my friends, my Croatian friends often joke that we moved all the way to America so I could study Russian. And they <laughs> thought that was, that was not the best way to go about doing things. But that's that's when I really started getting hooked on all things Russian. And I was a total nerd and went all the way, decided to go to the UNC for my PhD. And, uh, you know, I don't think I could have told anybody why I was really interested in my research early on. And I'm not sure I could have explained it to myself why I was interested in masculinity studies in particular. But I think fundamentally it was about me dealing with my gender identity and my sexual identity, having grown up gay and closeted for my teenage and, and early 20s. I, I think I was really interested in this notion of how men become men. And I was really more interested in about heterosexuality, really, in terms of why am I, why am I different and how could I not be different? And so I took this interest in masculinity and applied it to my other passion, which was Russian studies. And that's sort of the both a, a life biography and an intellectual biography, I guess. And that's how I came to this project in particular. Yeah, I love that you found this like personal connection to something and this perfect overlap of both your own interests and as well as your academic interests to pursue something that I, I I feel like when you look at gender studies and sexuality studies, it's often, especially with Russia, it's a little bit dominated by the female perspective. And so to fill this niche 
that is more on the masculinity side of things is, is fascinating. I think that dovetails really nicely into the book that you just had come out, Men Out of Focus, The Soviet Masculinity Crisis in the Long 60s, which is a much more deep dive into a specific era. It's, it's the thaw during the Cold War. And even more interesting, you provide the framework through, through cinema, through media. So c- can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, I, I think you're totally right. I think I was fascinated by the thaw. And those of you who have seen The Death of Stalin perhaps understand how the thaw got started. But essentially, it it really seemed like a country born anew, right? It it seemed like uh, new beginnings, new starts. And from everything, starting with how people dressed to how they lived, right? What kind of apartments to whether they could leave the country, go abroad, what they read, what they listened to, right? So everything seemed to change at a very, very precipitous rate. So I was really wondering whether all those societal, political, economic changes also resulted in the reframing of the gender order. My hypothesis was that surely this must also have an effect on the gender order. I didn't know how. And I was definitely afraid that uh, on my first trip that even if there was, the Soviet citizens themselves would not necessarily be aware of it or if they were aware of it, it would so, be so obvious to them, they would not have a need to articulate it. And lucky for me, once I started looking through the newspapers and started watching the movies and the cartoons, there was plenty of evidence there that both men and women were thinking about men's roles in this society that had so deeply transformed since 1945 when the war ended and certainly after 1953 when Stalin died. And so this is the point at which I noticed this masculinity crisis because the men found themselves in a position where they couldn't really find a clear purpose for themselves. So this lack of purpose for men's lives, whether it be in their domestic sphere or in their professional sphere results in this moment of crisis. Right, you mentioned in the book, you call them, you know, like the superfluous man, and you bring in this idea of Abramovism from Ivan Goncharov. I I found that fascinating. I'd never really even knew of that kind of idea that this is what men were facing at the time and how they were being portrayed of just kind of like purposeless, without a cause. It was a new concept for me. Yeah, no, I was I was attracted to this notion of Oblomovism because when usually we think about the Soviet period, we imagine those statues, right, of both men and women in action, right? They're workers, they're peasants, and they're always involved in doing something. And often as outsiders, when we think about the thaw, we also think about Yuri Gagarin going into space or the Virgin Lands campaign. So there, there, there does seem to be a lot of momentum in the thaw, right? And the thaw itself is about action, right? It's defreezing Stalinism and into the springtime that's supposed to be the thaw. But how men react to this, as a, I think, as opposed to women and particularly the younger generations, right, is that they feel stuck and they don't really know what to do with this rapid clip of change and they become frozen and passive in the process, because they're at this intersection, not exactly sure what to do. Frozen by the thaw. 
<laughs> that should have been the title of the book. I'm so sorry. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Time for rewrites. <laughs> exactly. We'll change the cover. I mean, I mean, is that kind of, is there a kind of a connection there? Because you talk about the statues where you have, you know, men and women in action. And that is very much a part of the Stalinist era. And even if people's situations don't change that much, once you lose that narrative of the era in the thaw and kind of softly liberalize it, then you suddenly have choice and then are paralyzed by the choice or is it something more than this? I think it is a paralysis because the power statuses have shifted. It's not exactly a post-industrial society, but it certainly shifts to more services, right? So if, if Stalinism is all about the factory, the thaw is about the office, the apartment, and a rapidly sophisticated technology industry, right? The scientific technological revolution, the focus on the atom, on cybernetics, on cosmonauts in space, right? So men who used to define themselves by factory work, which was very virile, very physical, right, find themselves in a society that's becoming increasingly urban, increasingly cosmopolitan. The focus is on light industry and consumerism. And there's a lot more attention paid to the younger generations, in part because of the demographic collapse after World War II. So you get a space in which women as consumers in chief and uh, younger generations as, as truly the future in a very immediate sense become more important in practice to the Soviet project. And so men are displaced, right, both at home because women as consumers have a much more important role to play in the economy and by younger generations that don't seem to be as deferential to their fathers as they used to be. And symbolically, the overthrow of Stalin as a mythical father figure also plays a huge role in this. And so this paralysis is really due to the fact that the old power relations that govern Stalinism have shifted quite rapidly. I imagine there, there must have been anxiety about this, about this struggle of feeling inadequate, of, of trying to define yourself in this new era. How, how did this manifest, this, this crisis? Like, what were the signs of it during this time? So th to go back to your original question about Oblomov, this is a character in 19th century literature who is most often found reclining in a chaise lounge or just a couch and he gets passive income from his estate and he spends most of his days in contemplation and he's not he's not a bad man he's just a passive man and so these these men are defined by their inaction but on the other hand even though that's clearly painted as a somewhat negative trait it is also seen as their saving virtue because they don't trust everybody, right? Or they don't trust anybody in the sense that they have to verify things for themselves and they learn things from their own life experiences. So it is, it's both a drawback and a positive for them. And that's, that's how they deal with those conflicts, particularly in film. And so the crisis in, in lots of these movies is about, is he going to do it? Is he not going to do it, right? Is, is something going to happen? Or is he going to stay stuck in time and place? And 
you you went through quite quite a few movies and like analyzing and finding the similar theme. What what were some other things that you were seeing? Like some of the some of the movies you were watching and like the, the plots. I because uh, for me like sixties era Soviet film is one of my favorites. So, but I never analyzed it through this kind of perspective. Yeah. So the the book is separated into thematic chapters. Um, and it really deals with the ways in which men felt they'd fallen short in their different masculine roles. And so some of the roles that I explore as men as fathers, both to children and then and to their more adult progeny as husbands, partners, and spouses, and as scientists. And I chose scientists because it was such a dominant trope for masculine occupation at the time. And in all those roles, men were found wanting. And all these movies really focused on the drama was about whether the male protagonist was going to succeed in managing the crisis at home or at work or an internal struggle. So all of them deal with, with this kind of theme or topic. And I'm trying to think of a, a, a representative example, and, and perhaps I will start with the cover image and it features two women at, at the front and they're centered and clearly visible and in the back you have three male figures that are well out of focus and the the story is about three men who go on vacation to the coast and they decide to be barbarians for two weeks and give up civilization and for them this really means not shaving not dressing up not smoking, and trying to live like Robinson Crusoe. And so the very setup, I think, is very telling about that men felt trapped by this, this thaw civilization, right? That they had to literally get away and pretend to live out in the elements so they could reconstitute themselves as men. And there was nothing strange about this setup for Soviet citizens. Like the reviewers who talked about this film was like, oh, this makes sense, right? That you would go out and, and play out this kind of Robinson Crusoe role play. And then what happens very early on the film is you have two women who come in into their camp and insist that this is their spot and they have to move. And long story short, the two women manage to, to en ensnare two of the guys with their wily charms and they fall for these women in the process, re-civilize. They start shaving, they wear suits, they take them out on dates to a nearby town, and eventually this brotherhood is destroyed right, by these two women and the romance. And so I think this movie perfectly encapsulates this curious moment in Soviet history where men are trying really hard to, in some senses, go back to this notion of a stereotypical Russian male, right, the mujik, who lives out in the elements. Uh, and forges his own masculine identity in an exclusively male company. And then women who are the bearers of this consumer civilization ruin everything through this fiction of romance and marriage. So very misogynistic, right? But usually we think about the thought, usually from the Western perspective, this very positive light in terms of opening the borders to the outside world. Khrushchev saying that, no, we have not resolved the woman question women are still not free in our society. And, you know, the publication of One Day in Life of Ivan Denisovich, all of those things are positive, but there's also this dark underbelly during the thaw and that these movie makers 
really clearly, I don't know if intentionally, but clearly discussed this masculine crisis in in misogynistic overtones. If, if I recall correctly, the movie is actually uh, three plus two. Yes. Uh, three 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 plus two. So it's it's very telling. It's just like you had these three, and then two women are added. It's not even like an even even amount of male to female ratio. And you you could even see in the beginning that they start out you know shirtless. They're like on the beach, like going to be tough. And then by the end, they're cleaned up. They have their shirts back on. The women have corrupted them. <laughs> <laughs> but in, in light of that, actually, it's like, I'm curious about the audience response as well. How how were viewers responding to these films? Very positively. I mean, I think what's fascinating about this is that this movie in particular became a fan favorite. And when TVs became more predominant in Soviet households, that this movie was shown before the summer vacation season because it was light. It was a comedy of errors in a lot of ways they responded very positively and the, the thing about all these movies is that the thaw was really the era of the cinema right before tvs became more dominant in soviet households the average soviet citizen would go to the movie theaters three to four times a week and not only that but the soviet film production increased by a few hundred because in the last few years of stalin's rule there were a dozen movies released And some of them were just filmed stage productions. There weren't even feature films. By the 1960s, you have 150 feature films produced. And that's not including the imports from Egypt, from India, England, France, the United States. And the popularity of these films among Soviet citizens, beside the multi-billion ruble ticket sales figures, was the fact that Moscow Film Festival got its start during the thaw. And there was a popularity contest, Sovietsky uh, Ekran, which was a, a magazine that was one of the most popular ones in the market. And it was really a glossy journal that featured the photographs of actors and actresses, it held a yearly competition for the most popular films and actors and actresses. And hundreds of thousands of people filled out these surveys that would then be announced every year, right? And so entire factories, villages, and towns would tally the votes on, on one survey. So Soviet citizens felt very strongly about these films and, and felt very strongly about their actors and actresses and knew as much about foreign films and actors as they did about the domestic ones. It's like the Soviet version of the Oscars with them picking Best Picture. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it was, it was, you know, it was like People's Choice Awards <laughs> to keep it in the Soviet context. Yeah. <laughs> So for, for those of us who might be in the area studies but not specialize in Russia and, and be slightly unfamiliar with these films, do they usually have the same kind of progression as 3 plus 2 where like there's a narrative of masculinity in crisis and an effort to address it that is somehow foiled by women or society? Is that sort of, does that, does that come up often? Uh, or themselves. Sometimes men didn't need any sort of external help. They just did it by themselves. So certainly women played a dual role. They were either the angels who helped men along their path, but didn't change themselves. They, they embodied an idea rather than actual women. And then they were the, the femme fatale figures 
who managed to seduce men off their righteous path. But there were also lots of lots of films that talked about how difficult it is to be a man. So, for instance, I think a trope that would probably be strange to us now, but there was a whole slew of Soviet films in which a man comes across a child, right, that they, that they were not attached to or affiliated with in any way. And this this kid would show this man who had who had strayed off the path, right? Either he was a drunk or a thief or just lazy and purposeless. This kid, right, the experience of fatherhood would then change the protagonist and he would suddenly realize, right, what his purpose was. So that was a very odd sort of plot for me. <laughs> But it was very familiar or familiar feeling to Soviet citizens at the time. And a lot of these films were super popular that had this narrative. But as I said, I was I was surprised at the number of films that had this particular sort of trope attached to them. So with this crisis that's occurring in the thaw, with Khrushchev then after with Brezhnev and everything, did the crisis continue? How, how did it change as, as the years passed? Fabulous question. I think uh, it continues. But what's interesting is that by 1968, there's this article by a demographer that was titled Protect the Men. So what I say is by 1968, the crisis receives a name. Right? And he focuses on the fact that Russian men are living shorter lives and that their life quality is, is poorer. And his solution to the fact is that women should start taking better care of their men and that we should, that the country should open male clinics to help men get out of this predicament. And what was fascinating was the responses, mostly by female journalists, who were who were like, oh, hold up a second. Maybe, just maybe, if the men stopped drinking as heavily, maybe that would fix the problem, right? <laughs> and so so the, the crisis doesn't get better, right? There are, there are no male clinics, even though the government during the 70s and 80s does two things, right? One, Brezhnev starts to try to turn the clock back and re-emphasize some of these more Stalinist masculinity tropes, right? Super heroic. So back to the statues that we discussed earlier. But what was interesting, even though I think people got tired of the the wandering protagonist who's lost and doesn't know what to do, right? That time had passed, but you couldn't reverse time and you couldn't get people to buy into the Stalinist superhero because the superfluous man has done his job, right? There's an ironic distance from the Stalinist superhero. And I think what's significant for our period is that clearly Putin is trying to do exactly what Brezhnev tried to do. And that's where I think this book and this research might be significant for a broader audience. When we when you think about Russian politics, contemporary Russian politics, a lot of it is gendered. And I think a lot of it is a in a compensation for this notion that Russian men, right, are somehow not manly enough. And certainly we can discuss discuss foreign policy, but the, the demographic crisis that Urlanis talked about when he was trying to protect the men, right, I think it's the same kind of conversation, except Putin is not talking about male clinics. 
<laughs> he's trying to do it in a different way, right? By pretending the problem doesn't really exist. I feel like there's a lot of parallels that could be drawn between this period and not even just Russian, but just online discussions around masculinity and, you know, sort of proud boys type discussions about secluding from women or society generally and getting back to being what men are in response to some social change seems to be kind of a, an old play, I guess. Yeah, part of the book talks has a comparative angle. And I, I want to be careful to say this is not a particularly Russian phenomenon, because really what happened during the thaw is what happened in France and Britain and the United States, right? And it's really the question that Trump addressed, right? Like what happens to the working classes, right? Particularly the classes that used to be able to depend on factories and industry to have a living wage. And these men are feeling displaced in a world that's no longer their own. And so nationally, the, these crises are gonna have, they're gonna look different but they they all come from the same place. The societies move further and further away from these very industrial societies that are becoming more urban, more global, more interconnected, more consumerist and more service oriented. And so they're all responding to similar kinds of forces and trying to negotiate those. I think for me, as we're talking about this, the first thing my mind went to, at least with a modern perspective, was also even just the discussion around masks that was happening in Russia last year, where the idea of wearing a mask was seen as soft, was seen that you weren't man enough, that you wanted to like protect yourself that way. And it's, it's, it's intriguing to see how much this discussion of masculinity and just gender studies as a whole permeates through everything from everyday life to politics. But it's not something that's commonly discussed, I found, or, you know, it's, it's not a framework people might take necessarily to look through some of these events that way. Do, do you find that changing? Is, is there maybe more interest now growing? So I will say that I think you're totally right in terms of the mask wearing. When, when people looked at the populations of mask wearing or not mask wearing, white men were the ones who refused to wear masks most often. And I think that the conversations about masculinity so much revolve around Proud Boys or the super straight movement, or um, when we talk about masculinity, it's, it's hard to say masculinity without, without saying toxic masculinity, right? Mm -hmm. And so we're dealing with these, I'd like to think, hopefully, you know, extreme and somewhat radical elements, but I think there's like, there's, there's a spectrum of the way this crisis evolves. And I think a lot of people that I talk to say, well, aren't men always in crisis, right? Like, <laughs> when have men not been in crisis? Confronted with their true selves, most men run away screaming. Like, yeah. and, uh, you know, and often scholars say, again, like with toxic masculinity, it's hard to say masculinity without saying crisis. And so some people have said that Talking about masculinity crisis is superfluous because it is just seems to be ongoing, you know, and in part that has to do with the fact that we live in a patriarchal system. So the crisis comes about every time there has to be a renegotiation of these power relationships. And in a, in a previous interview conversation, somebody pointed out quite accurately, like we, 
there, you don't have a lot of books on the femininity crisis, right? Women don't seem to have these, like, what are we going to do with our lives? What is the purpose and meaning, <laughs> right? So, kind <laughs> <laughs> of test that's still happening, but maybe <laughs> personally. <laughs> There's a book. There's a book. <laughs> I'm ready to go. There's my thesis. <laughs> and, I, and I take it seriously, right? This this notion of the masculinity crisis being an overused term that doesn't really describe anything anymore and just describes patriarchy. But I still think it's a useful concept because when we're talking about a crisis, it's not always a reaction. You know, Proud Boys are clearly a reaction. But then I think what the book uh, hopefully inserts into the conversation that paralysis is also one response to a crisis. So I think we have to be attuned to the different ways in which men respond to a crisis because it doesn't have to be negative. There are, I think, possibilities where at least there are mounting instances of, of men becoming better partners. You know, a brief story time, a friend said that she was leaving and for a night out and the husband says, sure, I can babysit the kids. And she was like, you are not babysitting. There are your children. Right. And so I think, I think there, there is a possibility of responding to a crisis and making it into an opportunity. And I think there is a movement, right. To, to make men as fathers and spouses more accountable and reframe what it means to, to be a man. You spend time with your family? Sure I do. Good. Because a man who doesn't spend time with his family can never be a real man. And I would say, I, I think why this is important to me, even though, you know, um, even though I talk a lot, including the book about heterosexual relationships, I think as a as an openly gay man, I'm invested in in men and particularly heterosexual men <laughs> responding differently to moments of crises, right? Because uh, I don't. There, there's always uh, a sense of anxiety and, and fear, depending on where I'm at, that I have to somehow still butch it up, right, or or become at least invisible. So that's. I think that's my personal stake in figuring out why do men respond to crises in the way that they do. And I don't know if. You or your listeners may have watched the incredible, wonderful movie, uh, Moscow Doesn't Believe in Tears. The, the conflict there is that the woman is a director of a factory and earns more money than her romantic suitor. And she keeps that a secret from him because she doesn't think that he could handle it. And lo and behold, he cannot, right? And and the resolution is really for, you know, the woman to take a back seat because romance and partnership is more important than career. And this was a hugely popular movie, both the United States and the Soviet Union, right? It won an Oscar. And so I think that we keep renegotiating these, these gender power relations. And whenever we do, you, you have these sort of conservative reactions that are that are pretty demoralizing and i'll just bring up on this since we're talking about movies one movie that was super important to me but also super demoralizing was fight club and fight club makes me think of the proud boards and the super straights right in the sense that this is how men who find themselves working corporate jobs 
using their money to, you know, to, to buy things to impress people they don't like, turn to violence, right, to feel something. So I think that's that's another example of this masculinity crisis, but that we all accept, right? Everybody was into Fight Club, and it was a cool it was a cool film. But it's to me, it's it, it stopped me on my tracks because it is exactly the kind of thing that I fear. The middle children of history, man. No purpose or place. We have no great war, no great depression. Our great war is a spiritual war. Our great depression is our lives. The number of comments on social media under the name Tyler Durden that say something horrible about, you know, women or men's place, like fixing men's place in society, it, it clearly resonates. That and Heath Ledger's Joker tend to be some of their favorites. For because they both do the same thing, I think. And what's interesting, in, in both both at a price of self-harm. What? I want you to hit me as hard as you can. And so that that's what I think is even more more fascinating. That self-harm is somehow a path forward, right? It's like a baptism by fire. You know, but by contrast, the 60s masculinity crisis was sort of a precursor or a stage rehearsal for the masculinity crisis in the Soviet Union of the 80s, which was much more dire because the economic situation was much more dire. Um, and that's why when, and, you know, and, and was then followed up by drunk Yeltsin. And so if, if we're looking at Gorbachev and Yeltsin as epitomes of masculinity, right? Gorbachev, who is seen as somebody who couldn't prevent or at least ameliorate the economic devastation that happened to the country, right? And then Yeltsin, who in his last four years was incapacitated by alcoholism, right? Uh, I think it makes clear why so many Russians, as far as we can tell, support Putin, not only because of his policies, but because of the kind of masculine image he projects to his compatriots. I mean, we make jokes about it, but shirtless on a horse in the middle of the woods still speaks volumes, you know, to how much of a tough guy he is. And yeah, absolutely. We, we it's It may be funny, but it's still sort of like, like wouldn't you want to see your leader looking so tough and manly, you know? Uh, you know, at the risk of being overly political, you may recall that um, during Obama's presidency, Fox News in particular identified Putin as the president they would want to have, right? He was manly, he was decisive, he was clever and ruthless, right? And so he was the antithesis to Obama. So even in the United States, Putin's masculinity had a great deal of purchase. So he he's established a kind of brand and as your listeners probably know better than I do, right, is that it's made for export. So whether it's Hungary, Poland, or Belarus, uh, or Turkey, all these male leaders have taken a page out of Putin's book. It's more than politics, it's the worldview. I mean, hey, we saw it even when everyone was getting their vaccines, leaders were taking their shirts off during the photo ops when they didn't have to, but they did. Um, never waste a photo op. <laughs> so anyway, but I hopefully, hopefully the book, I think, even though it doesn't, it doesn't go too far into the future, I think, and this could be my opinion only, but I think it sets the stage for explaining how we got to where we are today. The 50s and 60s are really the turning point for the kind of conversations we're having about men losing their purpose 
in, in an economy that's that's post-industrial and a society that's much more complex than it used to be prior to World War II. And so if, if we're thinking about Putin um, or other world leaders, I think it makes the most sense to go back to the 50s and 60s when the world started rebuilding itself anew um, and rebuilt itself differently. I have to say, when you mentioned, you know, how much Fight Club sort of gave you a shock, I was thinking also of, of Soviet films. I've been kind of going through a lot. I'm an immigrant from Moldova, actually. So I was raised on films specifically from the 60s. That's what my parents grew up on. That's what we brought over. And so we've been doing a rewatch of a lot of these films. And some of them don't hold up. And one particular that I had a sort of shock on as someone who's not maybe necessarily very, you know, feminine presenting was Office Romance from Ryazanov. That that for me was a shock because, Colin, the whole story is essentially that there's this woman who's a boss. She's very masculine, very tough looking, and she terrifies everyone because of that. She dresses like a man and wears these like very stern suits. And the way she gets the protagonist at the end is that she feminizes herself and becomes pretty and starts putting on makeup, even though she's incredibly uncomfortable doing it and doesn't seem to like it. But that's sort of the moral of the story. And that that for me was my moment as well. Just the sort of shock of like, yeah, this is you have to transform yourself if you want to be a woman and you want to fit in with society and find a husband. That's what you have to do. I mean, we even in uh, American media, there's that whole trope of the, the female shot putter from the block who shows up from the Eastern Bloc who shows up at like the Olympics and scares all the men. It's like to demonstrate how upside down everything is there, that the women can challenge the men at sports, something like that, which uh, I guess we're still dealing with today. But um, that sounds like um, like Dodgeball has that even. And that's like a pretty recent movie still has that trope. It's the it's the feminine prerogative. Right. And what's what's interesting about that character in particular, Colin, is that she's very calm. Right. She's very like Miranda Priestly where she's super competent, right? And whenever she talks to her direct reports, she's like, this is not acceptable. We are accountants. We don't make these kinds of mistakes. This is sloppy work. And so she's she's a very commendable character. And yet at the end, like, like the protagonist in Moscow doesn't believe in tears, she has to transform herself. And, that, and that's part of the masculinity crisis, right? Women have to, when men feel threatened, they have to become super feminized right in order to like ease men's anxieties mm-hmm. right so that she as a boss is no longer a threat because she's hyper feminine she comes very nice at the end so nice <laughs> yes. like lights up the room like look i'm so much better now than i was whereas i saw her at the beginning i'm like she is no nonsense she is getting work done <laughs> go you and then it's all ruined <laughs> Yeah, and I would say, I mean, during during perestroika, women were also asked to go back to the home so that men could have jobs. And even though, you know, women were sort of quasi-encouraged to take on business capitalist roles in the 90s, they couldn't because of, you know, not just sexism, but sexual harassment, if not worse. So, you know, women were just actively pushed out of the business sector. So, yeah, so I think, you know, the masculinity crisis has a steep price for for men and sexual minorities, right? 
for better or for worse, like we're, we should all be interested in, in, in this question. Yeah. I mean, even just like thinking about it, there's so many parallels even to the United States when, you know, all the men came home from war and found that the women had put on pants and started doing their jobs. And that was a whole pit. Yeah, everything is interconnected. Things that you think are or seem maybe secluded to one thing, it, it, it's actually happening everywhere. And it's, yeah, you can apply this framework to, to anything. We've taken up more of your time than, than needed because this has been such a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for joining us today. And we hope to actually maybe see you in uh, UT sometime. It's not too much of a drive from from. Kentucky to Texas, right? No, it's just 15 hours. <laughs> In American terms, just hop and skip away. Uh, so many podcasts I can catch up with. We'll see you then. Colin, this was, I feel like this was your sort of a deep dive for you on Russian cinema. We were sort of teaching you a thing or two. Are you going to go watch any of the movies now? Maybe. I don't know if I can remember any of the names. I remember three plus two. So I've got to learn Russian or slap that in Google mm-hmm. Translate and then I'll figure it out. I'm sure it's not too dissimilar from Czech. But. No, it's, it's it's a very easy language to learn. Okay. Um, and in the meantime, we can maybe think of other movies that, you know, reflect masculine crises. It's a shallow pool. We could probably name one or two. Miscongeniality, that's a good one. You know, Gracie, I would love to get a woman's point of view. Oh, no, 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 Beth, you're barking up the wrong tree, Reinhardt. Um, not a movie, but Married with Children. Well, because I realized that everything I've been doing up to now, the bathing, the brushing, the changing of the socks, the <laughs> being nice to people, the trying to succeed, it's all for nothing. Everybody loves Raymond. The one who moves that suitcase will not be me. The Honeymooners, pal to the moon. Boy, this this wife of mine, the old ball and chain. What do you mean I don't treat you like a woman? I treat you like a woman. I let you sew, I let you cook, I let you wash the windows, I let you clean up. Really any sitcom. I mean, I can think of more, but you know, this is probably as good a place as any to wrap our episode off. I hope you all enjoyed. Take care and we'll see you in the next one. Slavic Connection is part of the Texas Podcast Network, the conversations changing the world. Brought to you by the University of Texas at Austin. The opinions expressed in this program represent the views of the hosts and the guests and not of the University of Texas at Austin. For more information, please visit us online at slavxradio.com. Thank you. If there's one thing I'm so proud of is that I made Michelle use a Star Trek clip in an episode. Like, my work here is done. I'm the paragon of humor, Michelle. Don't think I didn't notice you put in that little, like, we're so funny clip, like, in the one episode. I'm like, I was mortified. Well, this is, I thought we cut, like, a minute and a half ago. This is, none of this is going in. Right? Right, Michelle? We cut a minute and a half ago, right, Michelle? Michelle? We cut, right? (laughs) 